Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. All right, so off we go. Should we do a little bit of what we did last year, which is uh, which is uh, this um, kind of the what we say in this idea of a breakdown to just quickly talk about what this prize is, why do we care, right? So uh, I'm just going to start by quickly saying. Um, um you know like we already have a comment from someone is the no- is the booker prize more prestigious than the nobel prize for literature? that's a very good question thank you for that is i think a- we should throw yeah. it into the composition all right you go why is this prize such a big deal okay well i think for me it's a big deal because it is industry driven mm-hmm. so it's essentially the publishing engine and the global publishing machinery coming together and backing a particular book. Right. Right. Which is why $50,000, to be honest, is not the most money in the entire world. Mm-hmm. Right. So what the author and the publisher of their book is getting at the end of the day is that the moment your book even enters a long list, you suddenly you are in the radar of a global cohort of publishers. So it means that you're going to move units. It means that you're going to sell tons of books. So Mm -hmm. it's it's really the industry creating a system for itself, you know, to shape culture. The um, Nobel Prize is a different ballgame entirely. It's a prize that is not so much, it's not driven by the industry at all. It's driven by... I don't know, something very eclectic. And mysterious. To be, I, I don't know. I feel like they, they stare into a crystal ball to decide mm-hmm. who wins. There is zero logic to it. Um, it is very much based on writers as opposed to on the industry. Now, the Nobel Prize is not the only prize that does that. The Wyndham Campbell Prize also does that. It's about the writers. But even with the Wyndham Campbell Prize, there is a logic to the people who win. Nobel Prizes, Nobody knows. And the pool is the entire world. So Mm -hmm. I think that kind of magical nature of it and the million dollar kind of adds a certain type of prestige and Mm -hmm. elitism to it. But I would say that industry-wise, the booker, I think, is is pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the focus is on the singular book rather than the writer's entire life's work, which is what you're trying to uh, explain. And just kind of historically speaking, the Booker starts in the UK uh, in 1969. Uh, And uh, one of the things that's interesting about the Booker that it likes, it almost kind of tends to perpetuate scandals and debates. (laughs) And some of those are, some of those are, uh, are, are interesting. Some are a little bit fabricated or sometimes not, not even entirely true. Um, You know, as you know, the, uh, the you know it's the it's it's a kind of a because it's the UK and it's the UK publishing industry. It tends to include or rather validate Anglophone post-colonial Commonwealth writers, uh, and it's it's one of those. 
prizes where we can say, even though, of course, it's dominantly white, it is Western prize, uh, it tends to have a lot of uh, diversity. And it's kind of like the, you know, the book that wins spurs a lot of writing on like post-colonial theory and, you know, uh, academic uh, production and things like that. So that's, that's also very interesting. Uh, when you think about it. So, you know, you're thinking about it starting, it starts in 1969. Uh, V.S. Naipaul wins right away, two years later. Um, very soon you have uh, Nadine Gordimer, uh, you know, you have uh, Ruth Prawajabwala, then you have Rushdi, Kutsia, all these people. So Africans, Caribbean writers, African writers, Caribbean writers, South Asian writers, uh, they have a lot of, they have a, they have quite a focus on these. One of the scandals a few years ago was when Margaret Atwood mm-hmm. and Bernadine Evaristo won and everybody was uh, annoyed um, because I think a black woman had not received uh, this prize before and then she was forced to share it. Um, but the double, the double prize tends to be a Booker thing. So Nathan Gordimer and Stanley Middleton were double prized in 1973. Yeah, Yeah. and then Michael Ondatier for English Patient and Barry Unsworth also uh, were forced to double up in 1992. (laughs) So it's, it's a thing, you know, I mean, of course, within that, we can't say, you know, we can easily say um, Margaret Atwood had already won before. So there was no need. <laughs> I would say there's no need. Uh, but yeah. they got very fixated on the book, you know. I, so. I, that That is still going to be a mystery to us. And, you know, um, yeah. you know I, there are things that we probably can, you know, can share right here about, you yeah. know, some details about what went down. But, yeah. I mean... That's a case where I do want to kind of push back on your mm-hmm. point that the Booker Prize is diverse mm-hmm. because there's a way that Black women have, you know, not been recognized in this prize, which is another yeah. problem that the Nobel Prize has because it's easy to say it's diverse when you think of what, you know, the fact that Black men or yeah. men of color are represented. But yeah. I mean, a Black woman has, well, I guess. Um, Tony Morrison? Yeah. Right, right. But but at least as somebody coming from the continent, an African woman has never, a black African woman no. has never won the Nobel Prize. And I don't even think, you know, the booker as well. And Bernadine was going to be, you know, kind of yeah. the first. And, and she had to share the prize. You yeah. know, someone didn't think to see, look, the, her mm-hmm. book is brilliant. And this is a significant historical moment. Let's yeah. not, you know, um, muddy the waters um, in any mm-hmm. way. So I don't know. Prize politics and representation is a matter that, darling, we can talk from now until, you know, till two. I know. So, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I completely agree with you. And it's no secret to whoever is watching that both of us uh, uh, are passionate about African literature and very much want, uh, you know, an African woman in particular to win this prize. Uh, we've had Ben Okri in the past um, win it. Um, but, you know, we've had Maza Mengiste nominated. We've had Natifa Muhammad nominated, Sitsi Dangaremba. You know, it's like we get even, even what's her name? No Violet Bulawayo has she been nominated yeah. before. It's like we, 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 we are 
favorites for long listing and short listing, you know? So yeah. when are we going to get it? Is this our year? Yeah, is this our year with no Violet Bulawayo's glory, right? Let's exactly. wait for that. Um, and I think a, a few other uh, elements about this uh, particular prize is that uh, in 1991, there was a little mini revolt in the prize uh, makers community uh, because apparently 60% of the novels that year were published by uh, women writers, yet not a single woman was even shortlisted. Mm. Uh, I don't know who, I don't remember now who won that year, uh, but that year people were so outraged, some uh, critics were so outraged that the Orange Prize, Women's Prize for Fiction uh, came about. <laughs> I see. I see prizes birthing other prizes. You know? Exactly. So, you know, that, that begat that, and that's cool. Um, and then I think uh, maybe you can say a little bit more about the publicity-driven industry agenda. Um, what happens? So they have the long list, then the short list. Why? It's, you know, of course it's prestigious. Any prize is prestigious. In this case, there is a bunch of money. It's certainly not the richest prize. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, what Booker does for the book, the actual book, uh, is very different than every other prize. Right. I think you have a theory on that. You have some thoughts on that, right? You know, I mean, I think that um, the value of a prize, the mm -hmm. impact of a prize, it's not always tied to the prize money. Mm -hmm. So you could have the richest prize in the world that mm -hmm. just, you know, lines the pocket of the writer and yeah. doesn't really necessarily, you know, um, inspire readers to buy mm -hmm. the book in a large scale. The book yeah. price is different. It's $50,000, you know, with inflation and everything, <laughs> darling, that is actually not a lot of money, right? right? But what then happens is that the writer is able to sell a ton of books because again, as I said earlier, it is a prize that is driven by the industry. I think Bernadine Evaristo shared last year mm -hmm. or so a plaque of you know, her um, um, having sold over a million copies. I think they give you some kind of platinum pack, um, plaque or mm -hmm. something like that. I mean, yeah, so yeah, yeah. multiply that by the amount of each book and that gives you a sense of how much yeah. you know she's her book has been able to bring in and people will say that Bernadine is special you know not every booker winner um gets that same kind of um experience you know Bernadine is Bernadine she's just she's awesome yeah. um but it gives you a sense of how much the booker mm -hmm. price drives the sales of books and how much readers globally hang on the booker to decide for them what books to hold on to um, yeah. for the um, coming year. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and the other thing is also um, the bookers kind of uh, has this capacity to uh, shape itself and reshape itself. So yeah. it keeps mutating. And one of the big changes a few years ago, I don't know the exact date, but more in the recent past, uh, they used to not allow the, the U.S., right? just because the U.S. is such a dominant, intense industry. And uh, there was something in interesting about that. And I almost kind of miss that uh, because, the, because I think the it just, the, I think the U.S. 
riders can flood the market in a very uh, particular way. And, uh, you know, we, we lo lose this, uh, we lose some, some smallness of the industry. Um, but yeah, so the US riders are in there now the last few years. We've had some uh, US authors uh, win. Mm -hmm. um, I think Paul Beatty, the sellout. sellout was, yeah. yeah, American. So yeah, so that's another interesting thing. And they also now have the international prize, which is sort of like right. a prize for the translated, right. the international booker. So that's uh, that's interesting. And we should consider talking about those, I guess, too, instead yeah, of just well, I, ones. <laughs> I think so. I know. We are, we yeah. are sad, pathetic Anglophone, <laughs> Anglophiles, you know, I, I don't know, we're just in the stereotypical Anglophone reader who thinks that, you know, there's nothing else happening anywhere else. There's no other language. You know, um, so yeah, yeah, I think we should consider yeah. um, having a session on that as well. And, and then before we go into each of the novels, the judges, that's another kind of fun thing because they roll out like who mm -hmm. the judges are. And I'll be very honest, I rarely... I don't know the UK scene. I don't read sort of UK newspapers, but they are very, uh, very uh, English UK folks, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, well, the judge this year, the head is uh, Neil McGregor, who is a Scottish uh, uh, art historian and he's in the museum world. So that's kind of interesting. It's not even like a, it doesn't have to be a literature um, expert. And then uh, the person, uh, so I can't predict the tastes of any of these uh, <laughs> folks, really. His name not on it, Alema Banku. Yes, he's the only one. Right. But <laughs> I find him unpredictable as a, as a personality. So. Actually, I don't know him as, yeah. a, as a reader. So I couldn't extrapolate yeah. on what Mabanku likes or what he gravitates towards. If maybe Adichie was on it or Tejukul was on it or, you know, yeah. Akweke Mezi was on it, I feel like I can speculate on yes. what makes them tick. But with Mabanku, I don't know. He's, he's, <laughs> he's interesting. But then again, the fact that we have a book like um, Trickle Walker in there, mm -hmm. I have a feeling that if I had to guess which book Mabanku fought for, I would say that's one of the books, as well as No Violet Bulawayo's books. And, you know, we could really? tell you why. Yeah, because he's just, this is a guy who wrote, um, you know, what's the book about um, porcupines, mm -hmm. right? So where this, um, the spirit animal double of a character is kind yeah. of telling us the story. You know, he's the one who wrote African Psycho, this serial killer who wants to kill somebody but somehow never can bring himself to kill somebody like he writes weird stuff so you know i don't know yeah. all right uh by that by that guess m john harrison is also someone who is a big um uh, proponent of uh, speculative fiction fantasy and so on so you know there are some uh there are you know their pace are already being reflected. So I think I think they have arrived at this uh, particular shortlist um, because of those. So anyway, so here they all are. Okay. And uh, how does this, what is this lens? Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> here, is, here they are. And uh, to, make, to make some mundane observations, uh, we have some very small novels, yes. minimal, uh, short word length, and uh, sh a short page length, and then we have 
the big ones. Is uh, Nivala Bulawayo's book the biggest? Is Glory the um, I think that uh, Shehan Karunatilaka and Noel Bulawayo are uh, kind of... uh, neck to neck. Okay, all right, good. You know yeah. what I mean? See? So, yeah, there they are. Okay. Um, okay, so I don't know. Where do you wanna? Where do you wanna start? Do you wanna start with Trickle Walker? Do you Let's start, start with Trickle Walker. I think since it's the strangest and it's a nice bookend to No Violet, which we are going to end with, you know. Yeah. Okay, that's right. So this is the one with the shortest word length okay. of all the six novels. It's uh, shorter than Keegan's book. Yes, by word length, but it's so uh, the font is uh, bigger, so okay. the pages are a few more pages. Okay, <laughs> that's what uh, that's what they said on the Booker website actually. Okay, but um, so it's written by Alan Garner, who is a sort of a thespian of uh, uh, these uh, kinds of works, and uh, they say that he kind of uh, builds on imagery from his own. Um, uh, region, the Cheshire region. And uh, yeah, and this is the story of a young boy, mm -hmm. uh, Joe Coppock, who has a lazy eye. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he is alone. We have no idea where his parents are or where they, you know, there's no sense. It seems that he's very isolated because the idea is also that we don't know uh, whether this is real or realistic or mythological or fantasy or fable and so on. And so, uh, and then one day a rag and bone man stops by and says he's the treacle walker. And of course, I would not know this intuitively, but reading, uh, apparently this is, there's a mythology here that this is a person who is a healer. I see. Uh, and then they go off on this journey. Uh, and while it's uh, highly, there's a lot of symbolic uh, uh, stuff that's being built up, symbolic etymology, symbolic uh, uh, incidents uh, that are rooted in the mythology of the region. I don't necessarily, I'm not able to locate that. For me, I was able to think about it as a kind of uh, Roald Dahl, you know, Mysteries mm -hmm. of Roald Dahl, who wrote yeah. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and so on. Uh, and also Roald Dahl, because my children... Uh, used to read it, uh, also has a lot of uh, young characters that curse a lot. Uh, yes, the insult. <laughs> so my daughter right now is, right, is reading Fantastic Mr. Fox yesterday. Uh -huh. And she rushes from the kitchen to read a passage to us that she thought was so funny. And my husband was like, the insults were so just awful that my husband is like, what is she reading? I'm like, yeah, it's Rodal. He is the master of of just yeah. you know, cringe-worthy insults. Yeah, and I don't know if we are kind of entering some like extremely problematic commentary or something here because there is such a massive amount of fan base uh, that Alan Garner has. So I don't I know if we are, uh, we are misanalyzing it, but who cares? That's what it read to me, right? Okay. Um, and I think it was interesting. It was a quick read. I read it in um, one sitting. Uh, I wasn't madly in, in love, let's say. Um, so I know that he 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 has he pushes back against um, people thinking of him as a children's book writer. Um, oh, really? Yes, it's something that he 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 hasn't fully embraced. Uh -huh. You know, he has a kind of ambivalent relationship to that identity. Mm -hmm. um, he says that at least I I skim through his um his Wikipedia profile. 
he, he responded to a journalist by saying, I don't write for children, I write for myself, which mm -hmm. makes me feel as if there's a kind of very inward writing here where it's almost as if he's the only one who understands this mm -hmm. universe that he's creating. And right. when you come in, you just have to, you know, just surrender to the rules of the world and not try to overthink it or try to, you know, bring, you know, too much external framework for understanding it. And so in that sense, he makes me think about African writers like Amos Tutola, The Famished Road, that just creates their own mythology by drawing from existing mythologies and a mix of their craziness as mm -hmm. well. Um, I suppose my question will be, why is a book like this on the shortlist? What is bookerish about it? So if I could answer that question, that would be, that would help me out because I don't, I don't uh, see, don't I don't see the magic of it. Okay. I mean, I see a, a real, um, uh, gap between the experience of reading it for me mm -hmm. and the reviewers who are saying this is just like just the most greatest book of all time. I mean, these are the kind of reviews uh, yeah. that I read about it. So I'm not uh, I'm not entirely sure uh, how to place it. Is it beautifully written? Yes. Is it rich in language? Absolutely. Uh, you know. Does it remind me of a certain kind of colonial education and childhood with the way in which it plays with words? Uh, yes, you know, uh, is that good? Probably, is that great? I don't know, you know. So I'm not sure how I feel about it. I, mean, I not my favorite book, but I have an even less favorite one, so. <laughs> yeah, right, so, so that's the thing. I'm like, this one, I see why it's in there, supposed to, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know, one other one that we're going to talk about in a minute. But one of the things that kept coming up when people talk about the book online is the kind of materiality of the dictionary in this world. People kept complaining that they had to check dictionaries, they had to go to Google. And I love the idea of a book that kind of returns us to language Sure. Forces you to grapple with a word and fight with it and notice it as opposed to just read through. Mm -hmm. And I think that for a social media world where we are so used to reading, just slopping up words, just drinking up things and not even thinking about it. This yeah. book is kind of fleshy in a way that I think is cool, which, yeah. you know, I would say that that's enough to give it a place on this mm -hmm. list. Yeah, um, you know, and I, I think a joke that I would add is when I was reading this book, I don't know if these were books written specifically during the lockdown, but I found that a lot of these writers, or I don't know if it's a publisher who does that, are really into playing with fonts. Okay, okay. so there's a lot of font play uh, in this one, there's a lot of font play in actually three other ones, yes. which I just find to be okay. uh, also adding to your social media thesis. I, I, yes. I can answer that to you. I think it is it is the way we think in social media. It's the way that social media is rewiring our brains. Mm -hmm. Is that we are just done with a certain type of book. We yes. are geared towards things that can literally break down stuff graphically to us. Yeah. And I think we are going to keep seeing more and more of these types of mm -hmm. um, of reimagination of what the book 
as the technology of information is. Yes. Um, but yeah, 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 yeah. I say we move on to the... Okay, all right. Oh, William. Oh, oh. I know he. What did you think of this book? <laughs> okay, <laughs> let me start by telling you about... Um, um, Elizabeth Strout. Oh. Is that her name? No, no. Elizabeth Strout. Elizabeth Strout. So Elizabeth Strout is an American writer. And although I had never heard of her, she is very powerful in the literary space and very well known. Mm -hmm. She has written lots of books. And with the exception of maybe one of them, all of them have been on bestseller lists, have been extremely popular. And she has made millions and millions and millions of dollars from her book okay yes <laughs> um and she's she's one of those rare people who they are loved by critics yeah. and also you know loved by their publishers as well you know because they sell tons of books mm -hmm. um this is a novel about a woman called lucy barton and she has lost her husband he's dead and it's essentially her relationship with her ex-husband, her first husband, who is called Williams. And when the title says, oh, William, it's literally an interpretation of the way she thinks about him. Oh, William, because William is pretty daft. William is also mean in his daftness. And mm -hmm. he has a very strange past. The, you sense that there is a secret in his world you know, that is maybe tied to certain kinds of historical violence. Um, he is an awful husband. I mean, just as awful as they come. He is a serial philanderer, if I should use an, a, a, an archaic term, you know. <laughs> yeah. He essentially sleeps around. When the, book, when the book starts, you think he's only cheated on her with one woman. And darling, as it goes on, you realize that, oh, no, it was the mo of their relationship yep. with so many people on the regular mm -hmm. um one of my favorite moments is, is when he says well you know i didn't have an affair with her we just slept together a few times like like that's supposed to be a good thing so um the writer what you get to know about lucy barton though is that she is actually a um a character featured in four of strout's work mm -hmm. And in the story, she keeps referring to other books that she has written. And then when I Wikipedia her, I realized that, oh, okay, she's literally right. Um, Stroud has written other book about her as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, I find the character very naive, right? Which is part of her charm. But yes. the writing itself is very naive and amateurish. Yep. Am I being too mean? You're not being mean at all. I mean, it was also very surprising to me. And I think one of the things uh, in her very impressive profile as a successful writer mm -hmm. is that every single one of these has been either a play or a TV movie or a full-on movie. Yes. You know, Oprah has supported her mm -hmm. over the years. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's just big time. She's also married to like a mayor or something. So she's, oh, okay. she's got this whole, um, uh, social universe that like knows about Lucy and there was Olive Kittredge, which became a movie. And then there was Olive again, you know, so she, she has built this world 
uh, with sequels and then whatever comes after the sequel, you know, things like that. So that's what's interesting. No, I didn't love the writing. Uh, and the only reason I didn't love it is because the other writers were so much more elevated, right? Yes. What I know about this book is that it, to me, classifies as what they call upmarket fiction, uh, which is a combination of a sort of, uh, which is not a genre, which is a combination of uh, lightly written, accessibly written books on serious topics. So Little Fires Everywhere, like Celeste Nagy, for example, mm, that's market fiction. So to me, that's what this is. Like, this is about this woman trying to connect and, you know, struggling to connect and also struggling to come to terms with having grown up in this intense poverty. And then it is sort of like this New York, you know, fancy world that she inhabits. And uh, so... And she's also mourning the death of her second husband. So all those themes are heavy. Uh, those themes are poignant. Those themes are universal. Uh, but uh, it lacks the punch, of course, of the others. And it has, um, yeah, like it's the themes are grave, but the writing is not grave. So there, it lacks gravitas. It does. And I paid attention to the passages that people highlighted because I read it on Kindle. Mm -hmm. And it's just this very mundane, um, like Insta poetry um, reflections on grief. You know, like they, they, something so simplistic about the, I, the reflection on these grave topics that she's dealing yeah. with, which tells me that you're, you know, hitting on something when you say that it's written in a certain kind of very um, accessible way, you know, where um, you say very mundane things about deep stuff, you know, and it moves certain kinds of readers, which for me is not a problem. You know, no. I don't consider myself an elitist reader at all. Sure, not me. I don't know if it should be on a booker shortlist, not even a long list. You know, so you have people like No Violet who they are literally standing on top of their heads, you know, to reimagine the novel form. And then you have this book that is a string of Insta poetry, nothing against Insta poetry again. I teach Insta poetry and I love it. But you have a book that is a string of Insta poetry quotes. And it is on the booker. And I'm just asking, how is that possible? I know. I know. How is that possible? I don't know. Because now I'm trying to recall the long list and I don't know what something else could have made it on there. But yes, so this is not on the, you know, so we are making a short list of the short list. And this is on the not list for us. <laughs> I, for both of us. I don't know about the trickle walker where it figures. You can reveal your results later. Um, Claire Keegan, I didn't mean to do this, but we are doing uh, like the white uh, American and uh, <laughs> uh, Europe, UK authors. Irish Claire Keegan, mm -hmm. small things like these. Mm -hmm. um, and Claire Keegan comes to us already very acclaimed from, uh, from her uh, novel Foster. And this is uh, a bare bones, minimalist, moody, beautifully 
evocative narrative uh, told to us primarily from the perspective of a man named Furlong, who there's a question mark around uh, the around his father. Um, and essentially, the idea being that it kind of exposes um, the Irish Magdalene laundries, where these women would be stashed away when they were, when they, you know, got pregnant out of wedlock, and they were horrible, you know, they were treated terribly, and the kids were either sent off, adopted, or also part of the labor economy, yeah, or, yeah, and then not to mention uh, the, the the mass deaths and things like that mm -hmm. where they, they were found. So and Furlong. So what what is interesting about it is it's set during a first uh, couple of days before Christmas, where he has a wife and four daughters. Five daughters. How many? Five daughters. Five daughters, and he begins. Uh, he sort of starts to get into a mood where he starts to uh, reflect on his life and his own wife who doesn't have patience for digging into the past and uh, who doesn't really, uh, doesn't want to do this. She's a practical, she's a pragmatic woman. She wants to get on. Uh, and so he starts to kind of visit this, um, this uh, convent nearby and strikes up a friendship uh, with the young mother there. And it's very moving and very beautiful. Yeah, I, I think it feels like a book a book. You know, um, I, to be honest, I do not necessarily like books that are so perfectly done, mm -hmm. that are so clean, mm -hmm. and that fits the profile of, you know, high brow literary fiction. You yeah. know, I like my books a little messy. And this book is just like has Booker written all over it. It's the same way I felt about Damon Galgot's book last year. Mm -hmm. You know, it won. So I don't know, is that an indication of something? Yeah. Um, but I like the Christmas vibe. I, yeah. I like just, you know, this dark story. It's dark, but it's set within the context of Christmas. I don't know if you're a Christmas person you know, the whole tree, cinnamon, hot chocolate, if you're into that, yeah. the spirit of Christmas. But I think this book captures it in a way that is very moving. And yeah. um, I watched briefly a a video interview she did with um, Colm Toybin, another um, yeah. Irish writer, where he was asking her, look, how do you connect the particular with the universal in storytelling? And she said that she does it through pictures, that she's somebody who holds on to the power of pictures and images to convey a concept or convey an idea. She feels like if you can't see, grapple with the image, with the picture, then storytelling doesn't quite do what it's supposed to do. And when you read the novel, she's essentially setting the scene of this village life, you know, by mm -hmm. the sea. And there's something visual about the story. Again, it's not about kind of a grand narrative. It's about setting up a tableau, a scene about the lives of, um, of these people through the perspective of this guy called Forlong. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought all of that was beautiful. You know, it's, it's well executed. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. She also said this uh, very beautiful thing that immediately makes you sad. Uh, I think someone asked her about like why why this book is so tiny or I don't know what she was commenting on the length. And she said Furlong's life is so small, like his world is so small that uh, that it can't even accommodate like more plot or more pages. Come on. Uh, so that was something very beautiful. But you're right. It has an extraordinary finesse. It's not messy at all. Uh, the only critique if one has to uh, offer is that uh, there's something abrupt about how it ends, that it required a little, little, little more, just a little more. So, uh, you know, so I don't agree with her. I think I think she could have thrown in five more pages to end a little more, a uh, little, you know, less abruptly. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. So I think this is this is uh, in my shortlist of the shortlist. It's in there for me. Yeah, it's in there. I think you're right. It feels like a booker book, but it's also just one of those very affecting books. You You feel affected by it. You know, it's, yeah, uh, and it really sets the mood. And I'm not a Christmas uh, person, but uh, I felt like being one reading that. I just wanted to cheer up this guy, poor fellow. I wanted to make pies with those girls. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's 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 a it's a beautiful book. I think that's mm -hmm. all I'll say. But I I also think that it's one of those books that. They are so beautiful and so perfect that they are also maybe not the most memorable books. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, you don't read them and say, oh, my God, my life was changed and tell everybody you right. need to have to read it. You're just like, OK, if I were a creative writing professor, I will give you an A plus, 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 plus. OK, yeah. but, you know, that's yeah. it. I don't know. Maybe that's also too harsh, but I, yeah. I think I just wasn't... Um, super super moved by this okay. uh, i have to say this the other thing is that i've been tracking the career of sally rooney uh and i've read normal people and uh i'm sorry like you know that's a kind of and you know it's a great show and it's a fun book but i would rather take this uh, irish fiction over over that there was it felt more meaningful um all right uh you choose the next who do we have left Oh, let's do um let let's keep the post-colonial people for the Again. end. Yes. <laughs> we we oh. have entered the war zone though, like with the Ireland, you know. I, I suppose, yeah. yeah. We we're we getting in the boy. Yeah. Okay. Percival. The other war zone. Yes. United States of America. Yes. And racism. Okay. You wanna start? So um Percival. Everett is a fascinating guy. Um, I was intrigued by his life as well. He's a university, a, a literature professor, which if you know anything about us, you know, we are not the most, you know, creative writing people in the world, but he's actually a successful literature professor as well as a successful novelist. As and in he's not a creative writing professor, you mean? I don't think so. I think okay. he was described as a literature professor. I don't know. Don't quote yeah. me, though. Yeah. Um, he has written 34 books or so. So he's very oh, prolific. Yeah. And mm -hmm. 22 of those, I think, are novels. Mm. And he actually has a book coming out this year. Yeah. I think another person who has that is Keegan, either Keegan or 
or um, the Trickle Guy has have a book coming out this year as well. Yeah, um, you know he's working hard, and this this story is a is kind of a mashup of genre. Mm-hmm. It is it tells a story of um, of a series of deaths or murders, right? Mm-hmm. And they all have a certain kind of aesthetic feature to them. A white man is killed in a way that the body is mangled. And next to this body is a black man who is whose body has been m- mutilated beyond recognition, um, holding the testicle of the white man in his hands. So as you can already tell, this is a novel in which you have this very gruesome representation of violence. Yeah. But the problem is that Anytime these white men are killed, the same black corpse appears, disappears and reappears. And it leads to to this kind of national frenzy. And there are these black detectives who are assigned to handle the case. And Mm -hmm. so it's this book that is dissecting American racism, but within the context of this very rich, generic Mm -hmm. exploration. I um I was fascinated by it. Um, I think it keeps you going. It's gripping, you know. I mean, it's it's about murders. It's like true detective on steroids, mm-hmm. um, and it's also satirical. There's a ton of humor in it. So it, mm-hmm. it's it's really this, I'll say, delicious soup of of different um elements. Yeah. Which it's very readable. Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, I'm just going to add one thing to that, uh, which is something that I love about this year's Booker shortlist is the laugh out loud humor. <laughs> I mean, this book is, as you said, a genre mashup. Uh, it's a it's a crime procedural. It's a murder thing. It's a, it's a historical fiction because all these murders eventually connect to uh, Emmett Till. It's his relatives. Uh, it, it, it's uh, the, the the relatives of the murderers of Emmett Till are the ones uh, being uh, killed off, and there is the idea that uh, Emmett Till is come back from the afterlife and and doing this right, and and it's a laugh out loud book, zinger after zinger after zinger. Every single name is a uh, is a uh, is an allegorical name. And they're very funny. Like there's a, a detective called Henrietta Hind. There is a, a, a British woman called um, Helvetica. And then she marries a person and her name becomes Helvetica New, which is the font. And the guy who um, they have Junior, 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 and then Triple J, Junior, yeah. Junior, Junior. Yeah, absolutely. So it just goes on and on. And there's a lot going on here also in terms of mixed race, uh, politics of mixed race. And uh, I think uh, the only critique I would have is that it kind of comes apart a little bit for me in the end, except one has to get to the end because there is the most hilarious and horrifying uh, speech given by President Trump. And uh, because it's written very much during that particular moment. And, uh, you know, and he's named as the president and Melania is named. And it's just 
it is an out of control, absolutely hilarious um, <laughs> speech. So it's a great novel. It's uh, very heavy in dialogue, which is the which is the issue, which is not an issue, but which is also the characteristic of this Sri Lankan novel. Uh, and uh, it's very, very funny. And in the in the way that you you are laughing and you're also kind of like just like you don't you don't want to laugh because everything else is so gruesome. Right. <laughs> so, yes, it's a great book. And this is the kind of writer I would say if he gets this accolade. Uh, even though he has 34 books in total, he flies under the radar. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, uh, he produces a lot and he produces a very wide variety of genres. And giving him the booker for this uh, would resemble honoring a very prolific career. Right. Right. Which is why I think he's definitely a contender, right? Absolutely. Because I could see the thinking being, look, his book is amazing. Yeah. His book treats an issue that is very much top of mind in our day, right? Racism. And he does this in this spectacularly brilliant way. Mm -hmm. um, but then he sort of had this career that has been understated. So yeah. this is his moment. You know, we have to give him his flowers <laughs> this year. You know, so I could see them thinking that way. Um as well as what um, Garner as well, right? G Garner is the oldest person to ever be um, be longlisted for the prize. And Bishop it's going to be his birthday on Monday, apparently. You know, so they may just like, you know, <laughs> let's just give him a fun birthday and give him this prize. Yeah. Um, so we are seeing veterans who are not only brilliant writers, but mm. their career may actually also play in their favor in the sense that, you know, um, mm. they should be recognized for having had a long career versus people like No Violet, who this is her second book. You know, yeah. she still has many booker shortlists in her before she gets to 87, you yeah. know? Um, so yeah. yeah I, this, is I, a, this is a compassionate speech, Anehi, but the booker judges uh, rarely <laughs> think like that. Okay, so if you're listening, you know, Bring us the compassion this year. <laughs> but I do think that he's a contender because this this feels like the kind of of mix of very excellent craftsmanship, but kind of you know the the, the sprinkle of messiness that you need to make a book kind of you know jump out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, yes. So one of our one in the top three for me. Okay. Uh, short of my um, shortlist of my shortlist. All right, the Seven Moons of Mali Almeida, uh, written by uh, Sri Lankan uh, Shehan Karunatilaka, and he is uh, this is his second uh, novel, and the first one uh, actually got the Commonwealth Prize, oh, uh, so he has a lot of accolades, and. Uh, and this is a, a novel that um, has been described, you know, that I would describe as graveyard lit, literally. It's written from uh, the perspective of uh, a ghost. And we are in this afterlife. And uh, the bodies have stacked up in the Sri Lankan uh, civil war. And Malinda Almeida uh, is dead. And he has no idea how 
he is dead. He just he wonders why he's woken up, and everywhere there are these ghouls, ghouls and ghosts, and they're like uh, they're having all this witty banter, and it's all very funny, but it's like this gallows humor uh, the whole time. And he has seven moons. That is seven days uh, to find a way to somehow. Uh, abo- he's a photographer. Uh, he's a gay photographer who has been photographing the war, and he has a box of photographs stashed away. And that stash uh, needs to be found because it could expose something large. And so we have him uh, go from location to location, trying to figure out what happened. Uh, to the box. Along the way, we meet his uh, clandestine secret lover, D.D. Dylan, uh, and his best friend, Jackie. And we also end up on this um, adventure, uh, all the way really punctuated by the horror and the violence of uh, the Sri Lankan Civil War. So it's set in the 80s. And uh, he, um, you know, he, there's all these rules he needs to play um, play by. Uh, he, he's allowed like a certain amount of whispers in somebody else's ears, you know, things like that. And uh, there's a lot of humor. And it's also like filled with all these 80s um, references to music and stuff like that, uh, which I certainly recognize. And uh, this, is, uh, this is a top-notch book. My criticism would be that it is... Um, could have required a little bit of pulling back. Could have pulled back a bit. I was joking. Five moons might have been enough. We didn't need all seven, you know. <laughs> and uh, I think it could have done with some tightening. And uh, to me, this is uh, exciting because it has the formal, uh, the formal confidence of somebody like Salman Rushdie without the Islamophobia and without the sexism. So that's a winning combination for me. And it has this intense humor, you know, which with Salman Rushdie, I, I, you know, I love reading his stuff, but the sexism kills me and the, and the Islamophobia kills me. So I have this combination in this guy and uh, I, I, I enjoyed it thoroughly and I laughed and I cried. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, it sounds, it's fascinating. I, I love the idea of the bureaucracy of the afterlife, you know, mm-hmm. um, where it's not this kind of pretty, ghostly, angelic, freely universe, but it's as stuck and um, and frustrating as being in a DMV for, um, you know, <laughs> to go get your driver's license. Um, yes. I like that kind of, um, of naturalism. Mm-hmm. I mean, I am partial to books like this as opposed to Keegan's book, right? Yeah. We are both exploring a historical um, context of violence. Mm-hmm. But Keegan's is just too soft, you know? It's like, at the end of the book, she says, between 1925 and 1961, they found that at one of this Magdalene laundries, 796 babies had died. Like, mm-hmm. this, this is violence in a large scale. And then, I don't know, the book we are using to explore it is a book that sort of speaks in whispers about this history of violence. Mm-hmm. I think something about um, not just post-colonial writers, but post-colonial writers of color is mm-hmm. that they go hard when it comes to exploring the archaeology of 
violence in history. Yeah. And it's kind of elaborate world making and world building. I mean, I mm -hmm. think it's a thing about just the way our people write, you know, that there is this really deeply layered imagination of worlds. Mm -hmm. And this book definitely represents that. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we're going to get cancelled because the Irish firmly believe they are part of the post-colonial. No, uh, they tradition. are. They are, right? But they're also Western. I'm sorry. Oh they, my God, of course. And white. <laughs> yeah, and white. And so there is a way that that imaginary just constructs narrative. And I think that if you're coming from an African space, a South Asian space, you are dipping into indigenous storytelling modes that just really, you know, build worlds that are in your face, you know, and I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I dig that. I love that. All right. So, all right. We'll come to uh, Glory, which is the one uh, one to root for, as we've been we've been told. But we can debate that. Yeah. Do you want to start with Glory by No Violet Bulawayo? Sure. So, Glory is by Zimbabwean novelist No Violet Bulawayo. This is her second novel, mm -hmm. and her first novel is. Um, God, what's the title again? We Need New Names. And it was part of her um, short story that won her the Kane Prize that year. I think it's called Hitting Budapest or something like that. Mm -hmm. And this is her second novel, and it is completely different from the first one. So mm -hmm. the novel is about Mugabe's um, dismissal mm -hmm. from power, right? The coup that was not a coup that took him out of power. I think... 2017, 2017, right? Yeah. And one day we woke up and, you know, Mugabe had been ousted from power. And of course, social media went crazy. Africa social media went crazy. I cannot even imagine how crazy Zimbabwean social media was at the time. Yeah. And she said in an interview that, that Brittle Paper is going to publish next week, she said that she was kind of rifling through um, social media at the time. And mm -hmm. she planned on writing a nonfiction piece about, mm -hmm. you know, the whole drama around Mugabe's ousting. But then, you know, all the think pieces started pouring in. Yeah. And then she was just like, you know what? I'm going to do fiction. And as she read through the comments by lots of Zimbabweans on Twitter and Facebook, she kept coming across the connection between um, Animal Farm and what was happening in Zimbabwe at the time. And that was where the spark came, to write an animal story exploring the context around Mugabe's ousting and the aftermath of that, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it begins with um, the animal called Old Horse, who is also, you know, Mugabe, yeah. giving a speech and we learn about his wife, who is called um, Old Donkey, and mm -hmm. just, you know, had desire to be in government. Mm -hmm. And then the story takes us through the, um, the, the new government that takes Mugabe's place and how it becomes simply a repetition of the same cycle of violence and exploitation. But it also cr um, chronicles the attempt to push back against this new government and the ways in which it was um, 
exploiting the people. All mm -hmm. the characters are animals. So when people talk about the novel, the first thing that comes to their mind is animal farm. Mm -hmm. But animal farm is not, of course, the only reference for the book. No kidding. <laughs> you know, it's made me crazy, this reference. I'm telling you, I feel like the amount of Twitter conversations have been drawn into trying to say that, yes, Animal Farm is one of the influences, is one of the genealogies, but No Violet is coming from a culture with a massive indigenous literary archives of animal stories. Absolutely has said that this archive was also a huge influence in how she created this fictional world. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing. Another thing that you need to know about this book is that it is structured unconventionally. So it's broken into, I don't know what to call it, vignettes, into this little subheadings. Yeah. Um, so it's very fragmented. And that takes us back to what we were saying about the trickle walker. Yeah. yeah. Let's see if you can show people what it looks like. Yeah, go on. Yeah, and, and that's so it's broken down into these bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating because you can choose to start the story from the beginning to the end. But to be honest, you can start from anywhere and you will still get something out of it. Yeah. yeah. The vignettes are? It's not, it's not a, it, 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 it's kind of structured in a linear way, but you can read it in a non-linear way. It's yeah. like jumping on your Twitter feed. There is no beginning, there is no end. If you spend yeah. two minutes on Twitter, you will get something from it. This book works like that as well. And it yeah. also, of course, includes a lot of Twitter, you know, quotes and things oh, like that. So it, it, it's doing a lot at the level of form and aesthetics. Mm -hmm. I would say... Of all the books here, this is the one book that is really messing with the novel as a form. And I think that for that alone, she deserves her flowers. All right. Yes. Thrilled to come to your te TED Talk. Jumping um, my soapbox now. <laughs> okay. I will I will add uh, I will add a couple more thoughts. I agree with almost everything you said, especially about the formal uh, elements. Uh, let me come back to convention, okay. also, because there are also very conventional things that are going on. Um, and those conventions are that this is very deliberately a novel of nation. It's okay. a novel of a Zimbabwe nation. This is wonderful. This is mm -hmm. a good thing. We need more uh, because those are the novels that, that uh, you know, get all the accolades. So we want that. So that it has this epic quality of the narration of a nation's trouble, mm -hmm. a nation's history. Uh, it has elements of a historical novel, an attempt to recreate or to, or to resurrect or to re bring back the figure of Nehanda, mm -hmm. for example. Right. Uh, and you have the very uh, beautifully drawn out character of Destiny, I believe it's a goat. Yes, um, Destiny a goat. Yes, Destiny is a goat. Destiny is a goat. And you have a Destiny who uh, takes on this, she becomes the sort of allegory of nation. She takes on this, uh, she's going to form the new nation and she uh, goes ahead and starts 
this revolt and it's a moving story, what happened to her family. So there is an attempt at uh, rehistoricizing, reframing, redressing history. So that's great. Uh, I also like the collective protagonist to write as a collective choral protagonist. I think that was uh, also formally interesting, formally innovative, and it's hard to do. And so I appreciate that. Uh, the theme of the booker being humor, she gets full points. It's so hilariously funny. Yeah. Like, I'm talking so funny, like bald over laughing funny. Yeah. Uh, I was more bald over laughing funny with the Percival Everett, but I think she's also just as, uh, it's it's got a lot of humor because it's also leaning on satire. So here there's genre mashups coming up. Uh, I would say that... Um, my critique of the novel is that the animals lack animalness. <laughs> and I don't know why they are animals if they are not, they are, they are simply, uh, they, are, they just do everything almost exactly like humans. I don't think there is an attempt to draw out their animal characteristics, except in the figure of the crocodile at the end. Uh, but um, otherwise, I could be reading about humans. You know what I mean? They're not doing a lot with their bodies. And that's an issue uh, for me. And uh, so I don't know what the animals offer. And so I think it's also kind of placed somewhere between speculative fiction and animal fable. And it doesn't deliver for me on either. I think it should have been a full on, uh, I think it should have uh, developed one or the other genre. This is where I think the genre mashup is uh, is a problem for me. Right, but it, it's always a problem when authors mix and match genres, right? Um, because it, it just never resolves into something that mm -hmm. a reader can hold on to, <clears throat> you yeah. know, so, which is why I think it's a problem that is inherent to the form itself. And I can live with that. And yeah. I also think that the animals feel like animals in African folk tales. I mean, mm. the tortoise isn't tortoise-like. The tortoise just does stuff, right? And mm. so I'm thinking that maybe that is the African folktale form, right? That ultimately, this is a story where animals are simply being used as a context to explore mm. larger questions. And so they seem very allegorical which is what you're pushing against, as opposed to being actual animals. Who yes, because, I mean, I would say, uh, you know, the Jataka tales is a very common uh, fable form in India, which is very similar to the Aesop's fables, where you have the animal and it's a short, it's a parable-like thing. There's a moral lesson at the end, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, but, but those are short. And because they are short, you can't dwell on right. uh, the detail. Right. But within a lengthy narrative, um, you know, when they're just as everybody else going to school, getting in a car, driving down a highway and things like that, uh, one starts to. Uh, and there's so much realism in it mm -hmm. that it starts to kind of. Um, um, I don't know. It starts to kind of fall apart slightly for me about why they're why they're animals. It's why they're just, animals? Yeah, it's fine. I mean, it's it's okay. I mean, it it works at the end of the day. But right, and so I would say 
as you're talking, I'm trying to think what is a novel that does what you're talking about. I'll say maybe actually um, Kafka's Metamorphosis in the sense that the actual body of the bug is part of the story. His difficulty coming down from the bed, um, sorry, from the bed, his voice getting thinner. There's a way that the fleshiness of the bug yeah. is what drives the narrative. Um, so, and I agree with you that this isn't there with this book. Yeah, and I was also thinking like uh, when you create an alternate universe, like in Lagoon, Okarafor's Lagoon, for example, you know, uh, I enjoyed the creatureliness of the creatures. Mm -hmm. you know? so, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so I think that's where uh, some of the right, right. stuff, but of course I'd be happy if she wins. I mean, it's time. I think she, I think she deserves it. I am just a sucker for writers who go all out, no mm. matter how imperfectly mm -hmm. it's put together. I celebrate and luxuriate in the risk taken of yeah. forcing us to rethink what the novel is capable of doing. And I think that this book does it in a very bold way um, that I, I, I think puts her as a pretty strong contender. Um, yeah. So I think we are at, at the end, maybe we could pull out the crystal balls now. Yeah. And um, no, I think you should go because I feel like you are more intuitive about these things. I, I don't have the intuition this year because I actually found it very hard to pick. Uh, and I was, uh, if I was the judge, I would do a double booker, uh, mm -hmm. for, for my, the new love of my life, Shehan Karunatilaka and Claire Keegan with the extraordinary perfection, the excess and the minimal. And, uh, so I would, um, so yeah, there's a part of me that feels like, how are they planning to choose? And if I have to... I'm unable to predict really between these two, but I think if one has to, um, if I have to really kind of think who it might be, uh, I think this, I think, um, I think Karuna Tilaka, uh, Seven Moons of Mali Almeida, simply because uh, the booker loves a good South Asian novel. So bring it home, you know? Um, so I don't know. I'm not sure, but I can, it might just, it could just as well go to Claire Keegan. Okay. Um, for me, if I wanted to be pragmatic, mm -hmm. I would say Claire Keegan. Yeah. Um, but it's also a tiny book. I don't know. There's just something oh, inconsequential about its smallness. Oh, gosh. <laughs> did, that sound, did that sound too mean? Okay. I'm just like, I'm sorry if you're going to explore histories of violence. Like, you have to go grand. You have to come, you know? Anyway. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, but if I want to follow my heart, mm -hmm. I would say it's between Seven Moons mm -hmm. and Glory. Yeah. Um, Glory, just because I think it is, I feel like, one of the ballsiest books in the collection. Mm -hmm. um, and also because I am rooting for her, because why would I not root to her? I am an African and I have undying love for her. And I think that the, the book should win. Yeah. So Seven Moons, I think I why I believe it's very likely to win is because 
a South Asian writer hasn't won in a while. Oh my God, is that true? Right? I feel like they're constantly winning, but I but, not poker maybe. Yeah, but no, not in a good while, I don't think. You have a challenge from Julian Okot-Bitek here. Do novels have to be doorstoppers? Sure. Um, <laughs> Like, how do they mean, like, be, do they always have because to? You, because you're talking about the small novel being small. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, no, no. They don't always have to be. But, um, but that means that their impact is different. I don't know. Um, I don't, I'm not a fan of, of subtlety and yeah. smallness in storytelling. And that yeah. maybe again is coming from a certain kind of tradition. You know, I like novels that, you know, that come big and yeah. build vast worlds for you. Mm -hmm. But again, that's just my interest as a scholar and as a reader. Um, mm -hmm. That's so a South Asian um, writer hasn't won in a while. And it appears that Sri Lankan writers are loved by the shortlist. They keep, you know, appearing in there, but somehow they're not winning, at least not because, in the Because Sri Lanka produces a prolific amount of incredible literature. You know, yeah. this is like, you know, Palestine and Sri Lanka outside of like, you know, stuff like African literary cultural studies that I tend to... Uh, do scholarship on, but uh, Sri Lankan and Palestinian literature, I just have the soft spot for. And it's like this intense war literature because I'm it's such a yeah, and, and the way, the many ways that they can build imaginative worlds around the question of war and violence beats me. They just have this inexhaustible <laughs> yeah. archive of, of just storytelling forms that I don't know, I, 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 I think I can see. Oh, cool the significance of um, of this yeah. book winning. Um, my heart goes, is rooting for Bulawayo, sure. but if I had to be pragmatic, I would say I would throw my money, not even on Keegan, but on Seven Moons. Okay. So yeah, so we are both saying Seven Moons of Mali Almeida. My heart is for Mali Almeida, uh, the Seven Moons book, but I worry about this. Uh, <laughs> beating out all our... <laughs> beating everyone out but anyway uh this was wonderful and so sorry fine. about the technical issues before but hopefully people can watch the recording and i will also turn it into a podcast so i'll put it all out soon good this was great as well um bhakti it's always fun to share space with you <laughs> and fight and quarrel and talk about books and i love this because this is literally the conversations we have yeah. you know on whatsapp you know, when we meet in festivals, mm -hmm. this is us talking, you know. Um, totally. I'm, I'm happy that we bring the same kind of joy that we have for book to the space. <laughs> and thanks to everybody who stopped by um, to watch. Um, thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you, everybody. All right. Bye. Bye.